Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. Henry Lopez here with you and my guest, Andrea Madho. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Henry, for having me. I really, really am looking forward to our conversation. As am I, as am I, as I was doing the research, and of course, we'll get into how I came to to know you, or know of you, rather. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. We're going to chat about Andrea's very interesting entrepreneurial journey, how she got to where she is today. She had an extensive and varied corporate career, and then decided to start her own business. And so we'll talk about that unique experience and her stories and her perspectives. If you want to receive more information about the How of Business, including links to the show notes page for this episode, just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996, and I'll reply with the link. So Andrew Madho is an entrepreneur, and after a successful career on Wall Street and uh, doing high-tech public relations, she is now using her personal frustrations and passion as she'll explain, to drive change in the way clothes are made. Her company, uh, as she uh, explains, advanced has, has leveraged rather advanced manufacturing for fashion and is the first systemic process uh, innovation in 100 years in the garment industry. Uh, they use ultra-low cost-cutting tables and alternative supply chain logistics to enable luxury brands to offer the clothes made to fit in 48 hours. There's no inventory, no sizes ever, and it's made in New York. So this, this point of the sizes is, is really the big driver, as Andrew will explain, and you'll soon understand. Uh, Andrew has been recently featured in a TEDx presentation where she talks about this, how this idea came to be. She's also uh, was the host of season two of one of my favorite podcasts, The Stroke of Genius, the Stroke of Genius is a podcast produced by the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. Andrea lives in New York City, in Brooklyn specifically. And so once again, Andrea Matho, welcome to the show. Welcome to you, Henry, and to all of the listeners. I'm, I'm very pleased. If you're listening, that means you're listening to the episode, and welcome. Yeah, thank you. And, and we may have, as we were chatting before we started recording, some real live uh, audio in the background because you live near a couple of fire stations you were explaining, right? Part of that authentic Brooklyn experience. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And you just, just before I started recording, you said you had just come back from uh, 18 days of travel. Where did you go? I was in Las Vegas for the uh, Women's Wear um, WWD Magic show. So uh -huh. they had um, sourcing uh, was one of the primary parts of that show. It was a huge show in Las Vegas. And Wonderfully enough, it was about 111 degrees almost every single day. Uh, I know they say it's a dry heat, but right. let me assure you, 111 is hot. Yeah, yeah. You still burn up at 111. Okay, how dry it is. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we were at that show, and then um, I was meeting some investors. So it's been a very wild August. This is where we're living. That's where we are right now. <laughs> where, did, where did you stay? Which hotel? I'm always curious. Uh, it was at the Luxor, which was really wow. a lot of fun. Wow. However, there was also a grasshopper infestation. <laughs> in and that was also headquartered at the Luxor. So. Just because they couldn't stand the heat. They had to get it inside. <laughs> it was that giant light at the top that it, that uh, attracted them. So yeah. um, always I, a story. Yeah. Vegas is fascinating to me. I find it to be all of the good and all of the bad that America can be, right? It's, it's this creativity, it's this build it and they will come, but at the same time, it's excess and greed and all of it kind of bundled together. That's my perspective on it. Uh, well, I live in New York City, so you can say every single thing about <laughs> Vegas that you can about New York. Uh, I love, one of my best friends is an architect and she's from Rome. And I remember talking to her when the Venetian was first built and I said, oh my goodness, it's so fake. And she, she just smiled at me. She's like, it's gloriously fake. <laughs> it is every single thing taken to the nth degree and that's she right. loves it and uh, i see things sometimes through other people's eyes yeah no that's perfect all right let's take a step back uh what did you study in college political science and history with a minor in english i 
always thought I was going to be a lawyer um, ever since I was a very small child. I'm from an immigrant family. And so I was given two options. I could be a doctor or I could be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I thought about the medical profession for about a minute. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. And then when the time came and I was almost down that path, I realized it wasn't for me. But a general liberal arts education um, was really great because it allowed me to to, to discover a lot of things and learn how to think, mm -hmm. which is probably the most important thing that I learned out of all of those uh, extended years of college. Yeah, no, I can see that. And, I, and I, <clears throat> I, I can relate to that because I think that's so important. Learning how to learn is such a big, big part of what you have to have as an entrepreneur, I think. Very much so. And uh, I'm in the tech world. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I was in school, um, the world that I live in today didn't exist. And you can't, the only way that you can future-proof yourself is to learn to adapt. And that is the one thing that was my takeaway from school. Um, there's not one class, there's not one course, there's not one thing that I learned. It was just learn everything because you never know what you're going to need. And that multidisciplinary education for me was incredibly valuable because it allowed me to be where I am today. I am always learning, which at the time I thought, oh God, yes, I'm <laughs> never going to have to read another book or study ever again when I finished. And um, today I, I am learning and studying more than I ever did when I was in college. Um, happily so. Yeah, no, I believe it. All right. And then you went on to have, you've had such a varied career. It's almost easier to identify what you haven't done than what you've done. <laughs> it, <laughs> about those early experiences and the types of things that you did after college. Oh, well, my my actual resume reads, you know, the Wall Street stockbroker, public relations maven and business development consultant. But that also masks, you know, door to door sales, <laughs> you know, a couple of summers. And um, I worked in a bank for five and a half years and I moved up very quickly. I started as a teller. And by the time I was in my you know, I think I was about 20, I was part time manager. I was underwriting mortgages when I probably couldn't even have one myself. So the story of my career is wherever I land, I learn. My One of my first jobs, um, I think I was still in high school, was working in a sporting goods store. And all of the girls worked in, either as cashiers or as um, in the, the clothing department. Well, even at that at step, that stage, I realized I didn't want to do what everybody else did. Plus, you made a commission if you worked in the uh, the hard sporting goods. So I decided I was going to work in the tennis department, and I didn't play tennis, and I didn't know very much, although I watched tennis on TV. And while I was there, I got my USTSA stringer's license to string tennis rackets. <laughs> so it's such a random piece of trivia. And yet, even today, when I'm in a meeting with someone, it becomes an access point for commonality. If I'm talking to someone and they say they play tennis and I just drop, well, I have a USTSA stringer's license, it becomes part of the conversation. It's learning and never stopping to learn is, is one of the things that I believe in fundamentally. So wherever you are, no matter how magnificent or how menial, there's an opportunity to learn that you can also draw from years later. And I worked Oh, I worked many years ago in the telecommunications industry, and um, I am willing to talk to anybody about wave division multiplexing if they like. <laughs> so lots of random information, and I'm going to throw a tiny little random thing at you. All of that trivia led me to be on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So <laughs> I love trivia. I love learning, and uh, thankfully, I have a good enough memory to remember a lot of this obscure information that comes in handy every single day. Right. That has to, I believe that always comes from having a curious nature, being curious about things. Were you always that way, even as a child? Very much so. Um, I just spent a couple of days with my parents and um, I'm an only child. And my, my mom used to punish me for reading because I read so much. Huh. I would go every Saturday morning and probably get a pile of 20 to 25 books. And I would read so much that my mom would punish me by saying, no reading for you. Um, what did she so, want you to do some of instead? Uh, play, <laughs> play with other kids, get outside, even watch television, like, please. Um, but I love, love, love to read. And I suppose that started at a very young age. I was never forced to read because I just love to, even this 
even at my age now, at my elderly age, I can't stop reading. If I'm in a doctor's office, I'm reading labels, I'm reading books, I'm, I'm always looking because you never know when you're getting to get some nugget of information that will help you. I mean, that sounds very strategic. It's not. It's just I love to learn and I love to read. Interesting. What you last said there, do, do you, so do you think part of it was you were always hypervigilant of your surroundings and environment to, to defend yourself or protect yourself? Was there some of that going on or was it just this thirst for knowledge? Um, I, I don't know if it's necessarily thirst for knowledge, but I'm always curious. Okay. Curious about every single thing and the why of how things work. Not necessarily from a mechanical perspective, but the why. Why are words the way they are? I, I love the etymology of words, the evolution of things. How things came, came to be or are is that story of, uh, of everything is what fascinates me, whether it's a person, whether it's an object, whether it's an experience. It's not enough to just experience. I always want to know the why. Maybe one of my other favorite books is the Simon, Simon Senok, Start With Why. Mm -hmm. And my whole life is about why. And also, why not? <laughs> yeah, love that. Do you, have you had any challenge with that, with that tremendous curiosity and seeking the why or sometimes it slows you down from making a decision or moving forward on something because you're I'm like, I have that challenge of overanalyzing things. Has that presented itself as a challenge for you sometimes? Um, no, that actually isn't. I love to have options, but I'm also about making decisions. Even if I make a wrong decision, I've made the, I've made a decision. My mom always says it's critical that you make the best decision you can in that moment because circumstances change. They can change the next moment. And so you just need to justify the decision that you've made. But um, I, our little joke is um, making an executive decision. Well, the irony is I'm actually an executive. <laughs> I am the chief executive officer, but no, I, I'm all about making a decision and moving on to the next one. As an entrepreneur, there are just so many decisions to make from the color of your logo to do I pick this account? I mean, there's never ending decisions. And so you lay out your options, you make it and you move on. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. All right. So it, it then it came to a point where for some reason you decided to launch lab one for one. That, that was, was that your first business? Let me ask that first. Um, no, I've, I've had, um, I have had a business development consulting practice okay, for about okay. 12 and that, years. And that was your own business that, that practice. Yes. Okay. So I, uh, I grew other people's businesses for 12 years. Um, and even as a stockbroker, I worked, um, I had my own book of business. So you were always getting your own clients. Um, but as a, as a traditional company, as a C-Corp in Delaware, traditional incorporated co corporation, this was my first one, Lab 141. Yeah. Um, but as you allude to, I think because you had so much diversity, Andrea, in your career, and then you had the consulting firm, um, it, it seems like it wasn't until this particular passion, which you'll explain in a moment, like you had enough diversity that you never were at a corporate environment for years, slugging away, feeling like, oh my God, I'm desperate to get out. You had so many different unique challenges that I think that kept you well, challenged is a good word, I think. <laughs> um, I have had a meandering path to entrepreneurship. That's probably one way to put it. Um, Steve Jobs has a wonderful commencement speech that he did at Stanford. When you look forward in your life, it's very hard to understand where the stepping stones are going. But when you look back, you realize every single one of those steps led you to today. And that's that's my life. I worked in banking. I worked on Wall Street. I've worked in telecommunications, door-to-door uh, -door sales, cold calling, uh, public relations at the highest level on the agency side, um, and business development. None, some of those things show a through, a through line, and many of them don't. They're just random. And yet, every single one of those pieces led me to found my own company, but to also ask those questions, why? Um, so I, uh, in my, my Ted talk I, called <laughs> of all things, clothing sizes, kill the environment and your ego. Um, it started with me going to a shopping mall. Um, and back when I was starting my career, when I was in my career, my corporate career, I always had difficulty finding clothing. I'm 
petite um, in terms of, of stature. I'm five one, and I'm quite curvy. I'm a size 18 woman, and I'm short-waisted. So 67% of all American women are size 14 or larger, which means they're plus. 50% of all American women are size uh, are five four or shorter, which is petite. So 67 and 50 are not fringe numbers. Right. And yet I couldn't find clothing. I literally could not buy a jacket that didn't require tremendous amounts of alterations. And I thought, well, we're the majority. What the heck's going on here? Because those numbers should suggest that every single store you see in a mall is for plus petite women because that's the majority and they didn't exist. And rather than start my own fashion brand, I turned to my partner, my co-founder, Philip, and said, why aren't clothes made the way 3D printed objects are? One item redimensioned and cut on a small, you know, single ply cutting table and then manufactured. Now, I should step back and say I do have an abiding love of 3D printing. And uh, he and I have been involved in the 3D printing world for about 10 years. So that's where that perspective came from. And he said to me, well, he said to me a lot of things. But he said, <laughs> As a mechanical engineer, software engineer, and 3D printing expert, Philip said, well, yeah, that's probably how it should work. And I said, well, why don't we do that? Hmm. And that's what we did. That's lab one for one came from that simple personal frustration that also represents millions of other, other women um, and people. It's, I say women, but men constantly come up to me and say, I have this problem. And everybody tells me their story. I think I'm part CEO, part therapist, because <laughs> everyone tells me about their fashion dilemmas. And it's not just about the clothing. It's about how not feeling like you're part of the fashion cycle leaves them out. Yeah, it is amazing how I shared with you before we started recording that my daughter wants to go into the fashion industry. And uh, she has the same challenges. She's Although she's tall, but also curvy and has a, a challenge finding things. You explain it, I think, in the TEDx very well as to the origins of, origins of this. But my my thought and question is I'm I'm seeing it through her eyes some changes and of course businesses like yours Lab 141 are starting to make even further changes but why is the industry still so entrenched in this archaic model? Uh, about a hundred years ago, we went from having a neighborhood seamstress or um, someone who made clothes to fit you, and they were standard styles that changed very little. Uh, around the 1920s, uh, the department store started, uh, large scale. Now, you know, there's a lot of flexibility with these dates, but people started going into department stores and they wanted pre-made clothing items. And that's where sizes began, because you had to have a uniformity um, in order to, to, to create this inventory of products. Mm -hmm. And so there is no standard sizes because every... From the 20s, it was always kind of that store had their own sizes. There was no standardization. So it moved from making one-offs locally to having this industry, this whole supply chain around creating inventory for brands. So we went from having styles to having mostly branded clothing, which has just been accelerating throughout the 20th century and is full-blown brand purchases today. You put a sticker of something on an item and all of a sudden it's that brand. It has very little to do with where it was manufactured, how it was manufactured. It's, I'm wearing that brand. Mm -hmm. Well, the challenge is there are millions of people like me who can't wear that brand because of this whole back-end supply chain that's developed over the last hundred years. And so I don't know why other people have done it, haven't done this, but I asked the question, well, why is it this way? And the answer kept coming back because that's how it is. I'm like, well, why? Well, why? Yeah. Like an annoying toddler. Why? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and how? How did it develop this way? How is that we have this particular model of so much inventory and yet none of it fits me? And that's why we went back to kind of first principles. What are sizes? How did they develop? What, who, who creates them? How is it branded? I did a lot of research. Maybe all that reading my whole life came in handy <laughs> um, because I kind of got down to the bottom of how it all works. I do not have a background in fashion. You heard about tech and finance and all kinds of other things, but I had no fashion experience. But as a frustrated consumer, I was the one who was affected most by all, everything. And so I had an incentive to change it all. 
So um, doing all of that research, I also, and that talking to my partner because of our 3D printing background, I realized that it was a, I didn't even know the words for what the problem was. I later discovered it was a supply chain problem. The manufacturing of things is supply chain. How the fabrics get to a place, how the sizes are made, how the patterns are all integrated. It's been such a learning experience for me. But I also fundamentally understood that if you create a system around manufacturing one item using technology, then you solve a lot of the fit problems. I know I'm getting very, very technical, but um, you start with one. You start with the individual and create a whole system around the person. And that's what we're doing. Yeah, this is all great stuff. Um, So I think now I understand I had written down why you said I'm in the technology industry. That's how you look at it. Is that, is that right? You look at it as being in the technology industry just as much as in the fashion industry. Absolutely. Because fundamentally we are a technology company. We're actually a data company because we um, are, uh, it's an integration of online sales with the manufacturing of one incredibly quickly. So for brands, um, let me just step back because part of the reason I'm here and part of the reason you have me on is because of um, Stroke of Genius podcast. Well, from the beginning, I realized that we were onto something truly unique in our approach to manufacturing clothing for brands because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to buy a particular brand at a mall and I wanted to create a solution so that that company but any luxury company had to use my system. Currently, 0.1% of luxury brands are available to the 67% of American women who are plus. <laughs> Let that sink in. 0.1% is available to 67%. And that's what we're changing. It, it requires that fundamental change. And so from the beginning, one of the first things we did was to file patents on everything on the equipment that my partner and I have developed, on the hardware, on the software, on the supply chain, on the on all of it. Every single piece of it is, um, is unique. Some of it we invented, some of it we've adapted, um, but I needed to protect what we we're doing because we know that our solution is huge. I truly believe I'm one of those billion dollar unicorns that you're going to be seeing everywhere in the not too distant future. And so we said, we need to protect ourselves from the beginning because this is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what brought me to you today is that um, it's part of that. Part of our story is the IP story. Um, We're, we're a tech company with um, every single element of our, our, of our process we're having to protect. In fact, we filed a provisional right when we started a provisional patent when we first started. And it, um, it took several years and we finally just heard back from USPTO. Wow. And um, yeah, it's three and a half years and they finally sent a notice like, hey, we think that you infringed on someone else. And at first I was so concerned. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, oh, no. no, no, no. It's all unique in my crazy little brain and Phillips. Um, and then um, our attorneys and, and another attorney friend said, no, this is a good thing because it means they're really taking you seriously. I see. So um, I'm not just wearing my hat. It's the, to all of the listeners out there, it's really important. If you have something that you think is truly unique, that you protect yourself. And ultimately, not only in my tech company, I have an IP portfolio, which is part of my real value. Um, we think that uh, we've already started having conversations with very, very large brands, um, one of which we'll get to in a moment, but it's Tommy Hilfiger PBH. We applied for a contest and we're talking at this tiny stage. I mean, we're still a pre-revenue startup and I've got eyes on me all over the world. We've got some really big players that are looking for real solutions to change the way clothing is manufactured because business as usual doesn't work anymore. We see it in the sustainability that second, you know, fashion is the second most polluting industry in the world. Um, There's just, it's catastrophic the way things have evolved. And so the world, the whole two point, I think it's $3.4 trillion is the fashion industry. And they're looking for fundamental change. And that's what we're talking about. We're not just a brand, we're a supply chain solution. I mean, the opportunity you have and you're going to realize in impact is is pretty phenomenal in so many different ways. That's why we're doing it. Yeah. And it's, it's, but just to step back, change can happen from one person and your problem. 
our company, our, our movement, our impact is because I had the wherewithal to say, why? Why is it this way? Because it doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not working for a lot of other people. I just happen to have the stubbornness and maybe some of the resources to start to make that change. But every single one of us has the potential to, to make that change. We're not where we're going to be, but I'm on that path. Yeah. And, and technology comes into play, but again, it's, it's that, it's that different perspective of not just accepting, Oh, it's always been done that way. That's just the way it is. Um, you know, I had not even thought about the impact from a waste perspective on the environment. I think about it as the impact it's had on my daughter and, and how she's made to feel because she's not a size zero, right? And that, that alone is going to have so much positive impact on people that it's, you know, it's beyond describing. But let me, uh, a question of clarity here. So let's take an example of somebody like Tommy Hilfiger ends up being a client are you, is it, is it an on-demand thing? How, give me a little bit more clarity on how it works. Is it me as a client comes in, wants this particular garment in my size, and then it gets ordered, or how does that work? Or how will it work? So um, from your mouth to God's ears, we'd love Tommy to be one of our first Sure, customers. exactly. That was just an example. <laughs> so any luxury brand who's a customer of yours, how does it, how do you envision it will work? So the way it works is um, we provide the sales platform online. Um, so it's actually multiple steps. At the beginning, we have a contract with a client. They send us their patterns and their fabrics, and we validate it. We make sure that it works within our fit pattern algorithms. So we actually manufacture five extreme body types before any of the sales happens, just to make sure that we've got all of the fit right for that particular pattern. And then on launch day, we drop that particular style on the, the customer's website. So you'll see, let's say on Tommy, um, one of their more popular styles, like this particular dress, buy now, made for me. So you would see the style, it would have all of the details, just like any other online purchase, but it would be made for me. So you click on that button and then it comes to our website and we ask you 20 fit preference questions, but it's all Tommy um, it's all branded Tommy. We ask you, how do you, what are your brands that you currently wear? How do they fit you? How would you like it to fit you? What are the current challenges? And through questions, we're able to determine your fit preferences. And there's a reason for that. People like clothes to fit them the way they want to fit them. Two identical twins might want the same dress to fit them differently. And so we go by fit preference questions. After the questions, you make your purchase and then we start manufacturing it immediately. That's why we're able to do it so quickly. It's the integration of the online purchase with the manufacturing. We're able to do that. Um, we're Right now we're about 72 hours. We're expecting it to be 48 hours in the next couple of months with the goal of it actually being 24 hours to from purchase to manufacturing. So it's a small batch of that particular style because it takes several um, hours to set up our manufacturing system. Mm -hmm. So it's not as though you can, we're sitting around waiting for orders to come in. No, it's one style, one day, buy it now or forever hold your peace. Got it. Got it. This is Henry Lopez. Let's take a quick pause on this episode to chat about your small business dreams. Do you have a great business idea, but have just not been able to get it launched? Have you built a successful corporate career, but need some help making the transition to entrepreneurship? Are you ready to start building your own wealth instead of someone else's? I invite you to schedule a free business coaching consultation with me. Just text BizCoach, altogether BizCoach, to 31996 for more information. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business dreams and goals and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to launch our first business. As an experienced entrepreneur who also made the difficult transition from the corporate world, I understand the challenges you're facing and often it's about helping you ask the right questions so that you can make progress towards achieving your goals. I can help you through your transition to becoming your own boss. To find out more or to schedule your free coaching session, just text BizCoach to 31996 now. That's B-I-Z-C-O-A-C-H, BizCoach, to 31996, or visit thehowabusiness.com. 
How do you envision, Andrea, looking forward that that might get integrated into the in-person experience at a store? Well, many of the styles that um, that the brands that we're working with are, are interested in producing in a made-to-fit format are styles that they already have. They already have inventory. If I walked into a uh, a large retailer, there's clothing right there. You can touch, you can feel it. And we believe the integration with the online component is you're in a store, you could be talking to a, a sales associate or there'll be a kiosk right next to the that item. And you'll know when that will be available in the made to, uh, when that particular style is you know dropped in a made to fit format. Yeah. So it's not like it's always sitting around like inventory. No, but, yeah. but there's a desire to have different styles. So with our system, you can have the same thing in 30 different colors. Every single day, there's a different color. Every single day, there's a different pattern. So it's um, a lot faster in terms of fashion cycle. It's all made to fit, but it's just the logistics behind everything have to change. This might be a premature question, but do you envision you might eventually license this technology or do you want to be the manufacturer of all of this? So we're, um, we are all of it. We're the online platform and the manufacturer. So localized micro factory production is where we see the future of manufacturing. It's not going to be giant fac- uh, factories in Asia or, or um, globally. We see our micro factory model um, that we're prototyping right now in Brooklyn as the future. So it will be either a franchise or a licensing play. But we believe that in the not too distant future, there'll be you know McDonald's or Kinko's. Um, style franchises that are manufacturing locally. That'll reduce the global carbon footprint of inventory moving around the world. Um, And so from a brand perspective, you're manufacturing locally for a particular market. And that that feeds into a number of different benefits because certain parts of the world have certain body types that are more common. Again, whether you're in a wheelchair, whether you're tall, whether you're a little person, our technology doesn't care because it's made to fit each person. And that's real inclusion because we're not starting from a size chart or from inventory. It's, do you like the style? Great. Let me ask you some questions. We make it. It's very, very bland almost mm-hmm. buying a particular piece of clothing shouldn't be will it fit me it's do i like it and can i afford it mm-hmm. that's a whole other issue but fit um one of the the marks that one of the trademarks that we've felt very very important is no sizes ever so hashtag no sizes ever is lab 141 yeah, love that. Fascinating. And I don't think you've touched on it, but the the name Lab 141 has multiple meanings. So share that with us. <laughs> um, it does. Everything that everything I touch has some story <laughs> behind it. <laughs> um, so Lab 141 is one item for one person. That's the only way it fits you. It's the only way it was really made for you. It was one item for one person. But the uh, double entendre, the uh, the other meaning is uh, my partner Philip um, Philip Manning, his grandfather and his great uncle um, filed patents in 1919 um, for the reverse pitch um, for airplanes. His great uncle Aubrey was a World War One fighter pilot, and at that time the uh, planes didn't. Uh, they didn't have a way to stop. They just kind of rolled to a stop. And so his great uncle, his great grandfather and great uncle filed patent 1413749 to slow down aeroplanes. Hmm. Um, so it's also part of our, um, our, of our lab and innovation history. The patenting is part of grandpa's story. It's part of our story. It's part of our, our company. Wonderful. Fascinating story. All right. So tell us more about Philip and partnering with, uh, this is someone you have a relationship with, I believe. Uh, how does that work? How do you make it work? Uh, you know, uh, let me measure my words. Working <laughs> with, is, he, working, is he there somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> he's not and he might actually listen to this. There um, you go. When you start a business, you end up spending all of your time with your partner, your business partner, more than your your home your romantic partner at home but my romantic partner happens to be my business partner and this makes things more wonderful and more difficult it really is both extremes but um out of all of it there is no one in the world that i trust more and in a business relationship trust is everything so our our let's say our disputes are a little more um 
heated. But <laughs> at the end of the day, I, I know that even when I argue with him and insist he's wrong, I probably know deep down he's right. <laughs> um, and I trust him. And in turn, he trusts me. And that's what makes for um, a spirited and a stronger company. It's Lab 141 is bigger than me. It's bigger than Philip. It's all of our team. And hopefully it will be a, a global company in very quickly. Um, it comes down to those core values and our core, core values start as, as two founders. It's about trust and inclusion. We started from the first minute thinking we're creating a company to manufacture other people's products for one person, the customer. And so that comes down to, um, that's part of the strength that we have as a couple. It's the two of us creating one company for everyone. So, um, it, it's a challenge and it's a blessing to have him as a partner. Yeah, well, that's great. And it's always challenging, but the trust component I think is, is the key thing that's so important. Uh, I believe good partnerships, you have to have trust and respect. And it sounds like you have both of that for each other. Trust always respect. Respect is debatable, right? I, I, I do respect, I, I respect him and he respects me. There are moments, but there are moments, there are moments that we, that everybody has. Absolutely. Um, and I, but it's through the arguments that you actually create um, a stronger company. There are so many times that I have to work on this that I sort of dismiss him or he dismisses me, but in that uh, rebuttal is another perspective. And mm -hmm. So often it's the things that I dismiss or the things that are brought up that I say no, that I end up saying yes to. Um, and it's so critical to hear perspectives that don't agree with you. It, it, that's probably been the hardest challenge for me is, um, I mean, I have no problem having, uh, taking in other uh, perspectives, but really hearing someone. That's been my one lesson this year um, and going forward is to listen to really listen and hear and to understand where that other person is coming from, always figuring out what that source is because that person might not just be pushing back there. They're often pushing back for a reason and you need to know that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. All right. I know you were, you were interviewed recently on the whole perspective of women and entrepreneurship and how, you know, more women need to become entrepreneurs uh, what's your message there and your thought there? Just a word or two on, on your thoughts for women looking to become their own boss. Um, you will have to believe in yourself. Some people like the phrase fake it till you make it and some don't, but I absolutely believe that you have to believe in yourself because um, at when you strip away the whole business and in those moments of doubt, you can never doubt yourself. And I think women in particular have this sense of um, imposter syndrome. There's so many women entrepreneurs that I've encountered who are just brilliant and beautiful and smart and innovative and all of these things and they have doubts. And I just think, how is it possible that you can doubt yourself when you are so on the right path? And so I encourage other women and women of color in particular, Find the passion, find your purpose, find a business that really means something to you and get your strength from that because there are moments that are low points. We talk about the high points in entrepreneurship, but the depression is real among entrepreneurs because you are fighting your own path. Um, but find something you love and then believe in it wholeheartedly. Some people use the analogy of a business to raising a child. I don't have children. We don't have children. We didn't have that blessing, but there isn't anything I wouldn't do for my business to succeed ethically. Um, and I think that's how many parents feel about their children. There isn't anything I wouldn't do. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And you talk about confidence. You've also talked a lot about the power of business networking. I mean, I think if I ask you, part of your key to your success has been that you, you fortunately, you always seem to have that curiosity and desire to talk to people and meet people, but that's really paid dividends for you, hasn't it? That that those network, that network of people that you know, like you said, you think you, you know everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I, I joke in New York City yeah. and on the West Coast as well. I know right. everyone because I yeah. go to everything. I So I'm fortunate that I am an extrovert and I love to network and I love to meet people and I love to know their stories. And in that, it doesn't mean, you know, knowing 
every single detail about every single person. But genuine curiosity and caring has helped me grow our network, my bus our business. You know, Lab One for One would be nothing without everyone else around us. And that doesn't just mean people within our company. I meet people every single day. And part of the Tommy Hilfiger competition was a friend of mine who I met through networking. Um, she, I went to a couple of different incubator programs. Project Entrepreneur was one for female entrepreneurs that was founded by a Rent the Runway Network and uh, UBS. And this colleague of mine from that incubator found an opportunity and sent it to me. So that's all part of the networking. It's not just about handing out a card at an event. It's having coffee with that person, creating a real relationship, because that expands your network. And I will tell you, time after time after time, people reach out to me with opportunities. I have someone I've met maybe once or twice or maybe once at an event, and, and they'll send me an article. They'll send me a link to something. And that expands the work that I do because people are – pre-qualifying opportunities for me. These mm. are friends and I would do the exact same thing for them. Right. If I read an article, I will send them an article. So um, it, for me, it's it's been an absolutely critical and crucial element to growing my business has been networking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, insightful. And I can see now, Andrea, the, you know, the curiosity, your of course use of IP and patents and so forth, the technology approach to your business and then this this uh, desire you have to interact with people. I can see where that made you a perfect host for the stroke of genius. <laughs> I'm curious as to how that opportunity came around. Oh, I, I'm so happy you asked about that because I love um, stroke of genius. Well, as an entrepreneur, you have to be savvy. And so I have a side hustle and I am a, a voiceover actor. So I do, I, I used to do some voiceover on the side. Mm. Um, and, um, a producer that I worked with had seen the uh, the casting call for Stroke of Genius a couple of years ago, in fact, and said, you need to apply to this. You are absolutely perfect. And I read it. And uh, Stroke of Genius podcast is through uh, Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. So um, it's I applied and I thought I was absolutely perfect because I have <laughs> patents, because I do voiceover, because I have an abiding love of all things technology and startup. And I didn't get it the first year. They have a different host. Um, and I was slightly brokenhearted because I just love their mission and, the, and uh, the organization. But out of the blue, a couple of months ago, they reached out to me again because they were looking to, uh, to change hosts. And that's also one of those messages for every entrepreneur, persistence. Mm -hmm. If not at first, at last. Sometimes it doesn't happen immediately, but it happens. And they reached back out to me to see if I was available. And it has just been magical. They, um, the podcast is produced by At Will Media. They hired me, but it's been kind of a relationship between the, the, among the three of us, I, um, Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, because they picked the, the, the podcast um, guests and we all um, participate in the production of the podcast. But what's been interesting is that because of my varied background, very often when I'm reading or when we're doing our sessions, I have an extra insight into things. One of my favorite um, podcasts for the season, and one of my favorite episodes was for Lisa Seacat DeLuca. Now that is the most bad <laughs> A middle name ever. I mean, forget, right. uh, forget, you know, danger is my middle name. Her middle <laughs> name is Seacat. <laughs> I just, I love her because she's one of the most prolific patent, um, patent writers um, ever set to uh, IBM and just an amazing woman and such an inspiration. Um, so few women file for patents. Um, so That's few women of colors do. Um, it's single digits for women who are primary on a patent. For women of color, it's less than 1%. Wow. And so... Um, I'm really proud of this season because we featured a lot of women because all those people who, all the kids who are in STEM, particularly women who are in STEM, girls mm -hmm. who are in STEM, they need to know it leads somewhere. So I'm really, really proud of our season. Um, and I'm proud that I'm a woman of color as a primary on a patent. So it's not just saying the words on a page, it's living the message. Yeah. I loved that episode. I loved uh, the Dean Kamen, <laughs> Dean Kamen episode because I'm such a fan of his. That has to have been quite an experience to chat with him. 
oh, aren't we all? I mean, yeah. I've been following the Segway since I, I know. Was a kid. I mean, I know everybody that there's knows a, the Segway. There's a great documentary about him, and and he's he's so brilliant, right? There's a great documentary I think I saw on Netflix about the Segway. You know, and originally it was you could call it a flop. It it really did not have commercial success. But that's not why he did it, and there's been so much of this come from it since then. But it just goes to show you, again, that whole concept of developing IP and protecting it, and that's why I love that show. Um, that one. Uh, I also love the Temple Grandin. Oh, yes, um, of course, of course. So, I've printed that on to several of my friends. I have a friend, <laughs> dear friend in particular whose son is autistic, so that one was fascinating to me as well. Absolutely. They're doing great work. So for all the entrepreneurs out there, I can't tell you strongly enough about um, taking a quick look at their site because there's a toolkit for entrepreneurs. There's a toolkit for, for kids. There's all kinds of information. Um, for me personally, protecting RIP is part of our value. If we do end up uh, you know, selling for billions of dollars someday, <laughs> my IP portfolio is part of that value. That's so right. it it was part of our it was the right decision for us and for me personally, um, and so I, I do come with that particular bias. But it's not that hard. You can do a lot of the stuff yourself. Filing a provisional, if you you know you got a, a weekend and some time, you can knock that out yourself. So that's the tiny plug for you know IPO EPPF. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, we we've talked about Lab One Four One quite a bit. Is there anything we didn't chat about that you want to share with us about the company? Um, maybe not the company so much because we have a lot cooking. I mean, I encourage everyone to take a quick look and follow us, um, to take a look at our website. We're in the process of redoing some of that branding because we've been under the radar for a while, but great things are cooking. We have a Facebook page and we have a LinkedIn page. We also have all of the traditional uh, social media markers. So we've got, um, lab141nyc on Twitter, um, you can follow me uh, at Gita Manning on Instagram. So we're all over the internet. Um, but I suppose one of the big takeaways is find what you love and want to change things. I mean, for me, it was that I just wanted close to fit me. And in the process, we're changing all of it. But that desire for change, that desire for inclusion, like I matter, my body matters. Um, has been the driving force in keeping me and keeping us focused and part of our mission. So you got to love it because you're going to be doing it for a while, every waking That's right. moment. That's right. Very, very well said. All right. You mentioned uh, start with why. Is there another book that comes to mind that you would recommend to us? Oh, um, never split the difference by Chris Voss. Um, a friend of mine has a fashion brand and uh, she had recommended it and I love it. So I'm, as much as I love to read, uh, one of the things that's been very difficult is to, to carve out the time to read these days. So I listen to that um, on the audiobook okay. when I'm on the subway in New York. So, you know, I, I so one of my little tips and tricks is I listen to things at 1.75 times speed and I'm able to knock out a book every two to three days. And that one was one of the few books that I ended up listening to twice and then I read. I like wow. it that much. It was that valuable. Is there like one takeaway that, that comes to mind that uh, was impactful? Um, make, if you're in a negotiation, make the other person keep pushing that person to come up with terms because sometimes they'll realize how unreasonable they are. Mm -hmm. So make them go, is it part of a negotiation? I've always believed you try to make the other party go first. Is that what you're talking about there? Or, or? Yeah. And to okay. keep asking, um, uh, Chris Voss does a great job of explaining some of this in brief if you watch any of the YouTube videos, but it's, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? I what see. is that? And forcing the other person to go through the logistics because so often we want to just meet them in the middle. But um, he started off as a hostage negotiator. So if you have mm. 10 hostages, you can't just say, well, let out five and kill the other five. Right, That's just not right. a negotiation technique. So um, apparently that technique works for a lot of different things and I've already started using it. So if you're negotiating with me, be aware. <laughs> <laughs> right, thanks for that recommendation. We'll have links to it on the show notes page. All right. You already kind of summarized me for me, the, the one takeaway, you know, find something that you love. And that for me, as, as I think back to this conversation that we've had, Andrea, you know, your passion for learning, your curiosity, uh, those things I think have been instrumental in your success in life. And you can just tell how passionate and excited you are 
I suspect that most days you get up and you can't wait to go at it. Is that fair? Very much so. This, uh, so part of my meandering path to entrepreneurship is I have been very fortunate in life. I'm kind of clever. I'm relatively smart. And, um, I was identified as a genius when I was very young, but nothing really, you know, I had to put in very little effort to have maximum results. This is also one of the, the challenges sometimes with, um, with children who are, are genius or gifted is that it, they can be very dismotivated because so little challenges them. I have never in my life worked as hard as I have on Lab 141, and I've never been happier. I am putting in every single ounce of my of, of my being into this, and I've never done that before. Pushing yourself is what we often do as entrepreneurs, and that's what I do every single minute of every single day, and I am so happy and exhausted. Um, <laughs> yeah, tip number two, make sure that you have like nutritious snacks around you because you might forget to eat. I'm a chubby woman and I never in my life thought I would say I forgot to eat a meal. And I do that all the time now. I forget because I'm yeah. so focused. No, you have to take care of yourself as well. Yep. But great, great insights. Uh, tell us again where you want us to go online to learn more. So the easiest way to find everything that's happening with us is to go to www.lab141.com. That's L-A-B, number one, number four, number one.com. Wonderful. Andrea, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm ending it only because we're at the hour now, and I promised you we wouldn't go farther than that. But uh, thanks for indulging all of my questions, sharing your story. I have found this conversation inspirational. Thanks for being with us today. Oh, Henry, thank you so much for having me and for listening to, um, to Stroke of Genius as well. It's been, that's been such a great experience. It's part of our story. That's Every right. single part of this is part of our story. So thank you. My pleasure. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks again for listening to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Andrea Madho. We release new episodes every Monday morning. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at our website, thehowofbusiness.com, or you can just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996, and I'll send you a link to the show notes page, and that's where you'll find all of the links that Andrea mentioned as well. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.